Welcome back to the Guns for Hire podcast. I'm your host, Ali Abrahimi, a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. This is episode two of our new show devoted to exploring the explosion of mercenaries in armed conflict. Today, we're joined by the Russian defense expert, Pavel Luzin. But first, please bear with me while we dial it back a few hundred years. In 1360, there was a pause in the Hundred Years' War between England and France. The bands of mercenaries from across Europe, who'd fought on both sides, they were known as free companies, they found themselves out of work and at a loose end. As a result, France was ravaged. Marauding gangs of unemployed soldiers of fortune roamed the countryside, looting, racketeering, growing rich on protection money, and accumulating power. Various solutions were tried, like excommunicating them from the church and sending them off on crusades. But the problem was only really solved nine years later, when, well, the Hundred Years' War restarted. So just as mercenaries were a major feature of armed conflict for some 3,000 years, and arguably will be again, they've often re-imported instability. We have to wonder then about the tens of thousands of mainly Russian men who've cut their eye teeth as mercenaries in Ukraine. What will be their impact on Russian society and on Russian foreign policy when the war is over? With us to discuss this and a whole raft of other interesting questions is Pavel Luzin. Dr. Luzin is a visiting scholar at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a senior fellow at the Jamestown Foundation, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. His research focuses on Russia's foreign, defense, and space policy. He also worked on Alexei Navalny's presidential campaign in Russia in 2017 on issues related to the Russian armed forces, law enforcement agencies, and the Russian defense industry. Pavel Luzin, you are so welcome to the Guns for Hire podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Ali. Pavel, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your personal story, where you grew up, what you've worked on, and the sort of things that you're interested in? I am Pavel Luzin. I am the Russian citizen. Currently, for 15 years, I have been working at international relations studies, global security studies, and so on. And during the last nine years, my primary focus is Russian foreign policy and military policy, including military industry. All this political economy background of the Russian aggressive behavior that we have seen uh, since, I don't know, since 2007, 2008, and especially since 2014. But my PhD thesis was about United States space policy. Oh, goodness. And uh, <laughs> I spent uh, my first years in this field studying American efforts to, in space exploration, their cooperation with other countries, especially with Russia, of course, some military issues uh, from ballistic missile defense to, to nuclear non-proliferation and using the satellite systems for, 
for preventing nuclear war uh, and so on and so on. But finally, I decided that Russian policy and Russian politics is much more challenging task for researchers than, uh, than the American space policy. So a lot of people can study the American space policy well, and not so many people can study the Russian military, military policy well, unfortunately. Absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned political economy because I thought we'd begin with a point that is related to our last episode where I described Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, as an oligarch. And he's so often spoken of as a business mogul and as a billionaire financer of the Wagner Group. But is this a mistake, Pavel? I presume yes. Firstly, Evgeny Prigozhin is not an oligarch. And moreover, Vladimir Putin is not Tsar of oligarchs in Russia. The Russian political system is much more complicated. Evgeny Prigozhin, yes, he's a kind of trickster of the system. But at the same time, he's very well institutionalized. Because mm -hmm. for many years, he came inside the Kremlin regularly. And it is impossible to do when you are not institutionalized. My presumption, it's just presumption, but there are some evidences that Evgeny Prigozhin personally belongs to the Federal Guard Service. It is a Russian version of the American Secret Service. The Federal Service is responsible for the protection of Vladimir Putin, mm -hmm. of the ministers, of some other key figures, and some governmental objects. Gremlin and so on and so on. Evgeny Prigozhin belongs to the Federal Guard Service. Why I think in this way? Because, uh, for instance, if you are invited personally to, let it be the economic forum in St. Petersburg, where Vladimir Putin makes his speeches almost every year. If you are invited there, firstly, a couple of months before the forum, you must provide all your data and all your background to the Federal Guard Service, and they conduct due diligence of you. Whether or not you are representing some threat, whether or not you are politically loyal. So the Federal Guard Service is responsible for any people who can be, I don't know, in several hundred meters around Vladimir Putin at any single moment. If Evgeny Prigozhin was capable to participate some foreign negotiations with participation of Vladimir Putin or with participation mm -hmm. of some other officials. Evgeny Prigozhin was engaged into, for instance, the Russian relations with Khalifa Haftar in Libya or with Bashar Assad in Syria. If Evgeny Prigozhin is capable to be on the front line currently in Ukraine, come there, mm -hmm. come back, use helicopters, use aircrafts, that means he's very well institutionalized. He's not a typical oligarch. He's not an oligarch at all. He's part of the system. And probably he has an officer position there within the federal guard system. But I'm not sure about his position, but he is closely affiliated with this service. It represents an alternative to the armed forces, the counterbalance mm -hmm. to the armed forces. So in Russia, there are several agencies which are engaged into the counterbalancing of the armed forces and into the counterbalancing of each other 
FSB, FSO, Federal Guard Service, the National Guard, Police, Foreign Intelligence Service, and some militarized units of the Ministry for Emergency Situations. So a lot of people, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of them. And which aspect of that apparatus? Is it the FSO who's in charge of kind of financing the Wagner Group or what would be its main funding stream? Is it a private company in a meaningful sense or does this interlinked relationship with the security apparatus give it access to state funds? Definitely it is a state funds. Money uh, that comes from the federal budget. For sure, there are some companies affiliated with Evgeny Prigozhin or with people affiliated with Evgeny Prigozhin. They are engaged in some mining activity, gold mining activity in Central African Republic and so on. But if we see the amount of gold or diamonds that the Central African Republic can export legally or illegally, this amount is not huge. And when you export, for instance, illegal gold, or illegal diamond, you do this with a significant discount. If you do have mercenaries group that mm-hmm. counts many thousands of people. It's expensive. Because cu- currently, officially, not officially, but according to the American estimations, uh, there are more than 10,000 mercenaries of Wagner group at the Ukrainian front line directly. Mm-hmm. Of course, several months ago, when the Wagner group uh, recruited prisoners, the amount was from 30,000 to 60,000 yeah. mercenaries. But towards the paid mercenaries, not prisoners, paid mercenaries, the number is from 10, maybe to 12 to 15,000 mercenaries. Each mercenary has a salary. The current amount of salary starts from $3,000. Probably it is even higher, but $3,000 is an average. Okay. Or maybe minimum, minimum. It doesn't matter. We, we need just an approximate level. So, so $3,000 mm-hmm. plus ammunition, plus uniform, plus guns, plus bullets, artillery rounds, armored vehicles, and so on. So only salaries of these people, the total amount of monthly salary of the Wagner group started from, let me count, uh, from $30 million every month. In one year, it is a $360 million every year. So there is no any business in Russia which can provide this amount of money just easily. Of course, uh, Russia has Gazprom with yeah. billions of dollars of net profit. Some metal companies with a billions dollars of net profit. But even if you are a big company, big corporation, you cannot just easily take significant stake of your net profit and just to give it to nowhere. And you cannot buy, I don't know, armored vehicles and machine guns and, and everything like this on the market. It's impossible. It is a state funded enterprise, so called mm-hmm. enterprise. Because you need hundreds of millions of dollars annually, every year. At the beginning, in 2014, when the groups of mercenaries were really small, just several hundreds of people, there was an oligarch, Konstantin Malafeyev, 
who was engaged mm-hmm. into financing of, of these mercenaries. But uh, firstly, for him personally, it was hard enough because uh, even when the group of mercenaries, uh, groups of mercenaries are relatively small, the amount of money they need is not so small. And secondly, even for the Russian political system, this delegation of military power was completely unusual. And the Russian political system is trying to keep the military power on its hands. Even if this military power is fragmented, but any single fragment of this military power must be under control, under the direct control of the Kremlin. That's why I presume, that's why I presume that Evgeny Prigozhin is not an independent person. He is a part of the Russian political system. Probably he belongs to the Federal Guard Surveys and definitely he is funded uh, by the federal budget and he works like a manager, firstly like financial manager of the Russian mercenaries. Yes, he's a trusty person in Kremlin. Vladimir Putin trusts people around Vladimir Putin, trust uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, generals of Federal Guard service trusts to Evgeny Prigozhin. So he's a trusted person and he just plays a role of this tough guy, which is completely independent and so on and so on. Now, in reality, he's a frontman. He is typical of a frontman and sometimes he is a nominal figure. Even we can call him a puppet, but we shouldn't forget that any puppet always tries to increase its level of autonomy. It is a, I don't know. Ingrained. Yeah, it is a rule of any authoritarian system. If he is so profoundly linked to the Russian state, can you explain what the domestic political reasons were behind the appearance of mercenaries, particularly the Wagner Group in 2014? But we know that mercenary groups existed before, not least the Moran Group and the Slavonic Corps, which was infamous in Syria. So this is a fairly old system of using shadow kind of networks and military veterans in the private sector. But what is the Kremlin's strategy for allowing or co-opting PMCs, as you've just explained? Why are they doing it? You are right when you say the word co-opting, because Slavic Corp in 2013, it was a really private initiative. And that's why people who organized Slavic Corp were arrested and were imprisoned in Russia because they acted independently. So co-opting of the mercenaries, yes, that was a trend, but the real turning point earlier than 2013 or 2014, the turning point was in spring of 2010. In 2010, in the Russian Far East region, Primorsky Krai, the area around the city of Vladivostok, the Pacific Ocean, was a small group of 10 young guys who had a military background. They served like conscripted soldiers. They were drafted to the armed forces and some of them served into the military intelligence, into the special forces unit. And after their drafted surveys, they came back to their home, hometown, not Vladivostok, small town or even village. They came there and they found that they don't have any future there. The police was corrupted. The local officials, local bureaucrats, they were corrupted. And uh, these guys decided to act like in American movies, decided to bring an order to their hometown. Vigilantes. 
and they started to kill police officers. They killed uh, the first couple of uh, police officers. They took their guns. They killed another police officers and so on. And their activity was so huge. They started kill one by one that the Russian government needed to organize a kind of military operation about them. Mm-hmm. And they were active for about one month or something like that. So it wasn't the history for a couple of hours or for a couple of days. And even after that, when the most of them has been killed, some of them were arrested at the end. After that, the police officers within the region, they were scared to walk outside of their police stations wearing their uniform. Right. Yes, they were scared. And uh, another problem for the Kremlin was that the most of people within the region, common people, they morally supported these guys. And the Kremlin realized that there are a significant amount of hotheads in Russia. It was in Mumbai terroristic attack, November 2008. The group of terrorists, less than 100 of them, or around 100 of them, they paralyzed Mumbai a huge megapolis mm-hmm. for several days. And the Kremlin took note of this, did they? Of course. Mm-hmm. If the group of 10 guys with military background were able to paralyze the region, yeah, this region is huge territorially, but it is small in terms of population. But, and a lot of forests, a lot of mountains, and you may hide everywhere, but nevertheless, what if... I don't know, the group of 40 people or 50 people will try to start their revenge somewhere near Moscow. That, right. th- that was the logic of, of the Kremlin. And they realized that there is a significant amount of hotheads who cannot find themselves into the peace life, who cannot find themselves within the Russian political economy system. So what to do with them? Yeah. What to do with them? Firstly, the first steps were logic. The Russian authorities started to limit the amount of civil arms on people's hands. It was a logical step, but when the Arabic Spring came, after that, when the revolution in Ukraine in late 2013, early 2014 yeah. appeared. Maidan. Yes, Maidan, the revolution of dignity. Kremlin was really scared. Because the Kremlin knew perfectly well, not maybe not perfectly, but relatively well, the Kremlin knew that there is a trouble within Russia because the authoritarian power with a significant amount of corruption, with an absence of sustainable economic prospects for the most of people. So what to do? And the Kremlin yeah. decided to co-opt the mercenaries into the system. But the first reason was to dispose, to utilize these hotheads mm-hmm. in the Kremlin's adventures all around the world. Syria, Libya, Central African Republic, Mali, Ukraine, even Madagascar maybe. It was the first reason. The second reason was to balance the armed forces. And the third reason was the mercenaries like a tool of terror yeah. against the civil population. For instance, in Ukraine, since 2014, Donetsk, Lansk, Syria as well, civil population in Sunni areas, and you can terrorize this population 
and you can deny your responsibility for this. And plausible deniability, yeah. Yes. We should also count one interesting process in Russia that at the time, at the beginning of uh, 2010s, so 12, 13 years ago, within the armed forces, there was a special operation forces established. Instead of, or in addition of the special operation brigades within the military intelligence. Mm -hmm. So parallel structure. Right. And these special right. operation forces within the Russian armed forces, they never be headed by military officers. We're headed by the guys either from Federal Guard Service or mm -hmm. from FSB. That's the paradox of the Russian system, but that's how it works. You create the parallel special operation structure and within the armed forces, but the head of the structure does not belong to the armed forces. It belongs to the Guard Service or to the FSB. And maybe the Wagner Group related with the Federal Guard Service, not directly, but indirectly through the Special Operation Forces. But uh, it is details that, that currently unclear. But it is a very yeah. sort of intricate web. And what it's so interesting what you say. You describe that this kind of explosive tool of foreign policy that mercenaries are that actually they're the product of concerns over domestic stability within Russia. That's how they emerged. And that's fascinating. And so I want to ask you, how does Putin justify his reliance on mercenaries to Russians? So we've seen the billboards about the Wagner Group and the adverts, which all kind of feels extraordinary, not just in terms of making mercenaries normal, but also the Kremlin admitting openly its dependence on the private sector for its special military operation. So how is Putin's default to mercenaries, how is that sold to the Russian public? Firstly, they denied the existence of uh, mercenaries. In the beginning, yeah. At the beginning, in the first years. They denied uh, any relations with Prigozhin, they denied any relations with the people who planned the military operations of Wagner Group, Colonel Utkin. Yep. Who, who has been retired from the military intelligence. I presume he was retired from the military intelligence also because he was, and he is too crazy, even for the military intelligence. He was too crazy. He is a really neo-Nazist guy yeah. with uh, Nazis tattoos on his uh, shoulders, who is a fan of uh, Adolf Hitler, who is a fan of uh, Wagner composer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Wagner composer, we may discuss our m musical taste. It, it doesn't matter here. But when the officer of the military intelligence, high-ranking officer of the military intelligence, is admiring of Adolf Hitler, it's not normal. It's not no. normal even for the Russian military intelligence. Right, that's an interesting benchmark. Yeah, it, it is not normal. You're saying the association isn't accidental. So when the full-scale scale aggression against Ukraine started, they recognized that, yes, the Wagner group is, exists, group of mercenaries, but they are not mercenaries because the mercenaries are prohibited in Russia, but they are true volunteer, patriotic soldiers, combatants, and so on. Right. So they became illegal being illegal because there is no any entity that they are Currently, they are allowed to publish advertising. Yeah. Big billboards in the Russian cities. They also have advertising in the Russian TV. Mm -hmm. State-owned TV channels. 
also. And they're depicted as volunteers. And- yeah, and they're depicted like volunteers and patriotic mm-hmm. guys who are not comfortable within the military hierarchy, the military hierarchy of the armed forces. Mm-hmm. They are like soldiers of fortune mm-hmm. uh, with a floor of patriotism. <laughs> Mavericks, right. And uh, nevertheless, uh, they're still illegal. They're still illegal and they're still war criminals. Right. And that's a problem because currently there is an increasing level of criminal activity in Russia. That is yeah. nothing strange after the year of the war. Mm-hmm. But the most bloody crimes during the last several months, bloody crimes in Russia. Yeah. They were conducted not by soldiers or officers of the Russian armed forces, mm-hmm. but uh, they have been done by mercenaries who came just for short-term vacation right. to their hometowns. One of these guys, he killed he killed old lady with a knife. I don't know, several tens of, of strikes by knife, by knife on the body. Another one killed another person. It's a bloody manner, like maniacs. And so right. So it's that kind of brutalization is coming back and bleeding into Russian society. Of course. And that's why originally before February 2022, the Kremlin was interested that most of mercenaries must die on the battlefield. Mm. Somewhere in Syria, somewhere in Libya, somewhere in Central African Republic and so on. It was a tool of utilization, but currently it's completely out of control. I see. Because even if the most of mercenaries still dying on the front line of Ukraine, some of them are coming back. Yeah. So in the planning, it's baked in that most of them will perish. Of course, they wanted to utilize to dispose the hotheads of the Russian society, but they created more hotheads at the end. And these hotheads currently, they are not caring about corruption in their domestic towns. They are caring about just killing. They, they acting like maniacs and psychopaths. So what do you think is behind this very public and escalating spat between Prigozhin and members of the Russian military establishment? Because it's not just barbs and backhanded compliments. We're talking accusations of high treason against the top military brass. And Prigozhin saying the punk generals should be shipped to the front barefoot. Is this spectacle something that Putin himself encourages? And to what end? Why? Because it does suggest a level of disarray and chaos. It is not encouraged only by Putin himself. It's encouraged by the Russian political system. Because the competition and even hate between different services exists. And for instance, even in Soviet era, the military officers, they always hated the officers from KGB, from the counterintelligence. And currently, as Prigozhin presumably or probably affiliated with the Federal Guard Service, mm-hmm. and because of during the last three years since the pandemic and started, started and since the Kremlin decided to change the Russian constitution. Putin's inner circle also changed. And currently his inner circle is represented by his bodyguards. So the guys from the Federal Guard Service. Prigozhin feels the support of of these guys, probably. He allows himself to use this racket against the military leadership of Russia. And also 
this is a kind of n- not only competition, interagency competition. It's a kind of interagency struggling. Why? Because currently one of the biggest domestic political questions in Russia is who will take the whole responsibility for this awful nightmare. I see. Of the war. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it is the guys from FSB who were responsible for intelligence in Ukraine, who were responsible for recruiting traitors in Ukraine, and who were responsible for military planning. That is unusual because these guys in FSB, they're not good military planners, but they decided that the war is too sophisticated thing to give the military, to give the military the responsibility for the war. Yeah. The stakes of a war were too high to leave to the military experts. Yeah, yes, yeah. Or the main responsibility should be taken by uh, the Russian armed forces who were predictably unprepared for the war. Predictably. And it was clear not only for me, I wrote papers about these troubles within the Russian armed forces since 2018, 2019, but also the mm, former officers of the general staff who are completely loyal to the current political system, but uh, because of their retired officers, they are available to speak loudly. A couple of weeks before the invasion, uh, they warned society in Russia that, come on, guys, we are not ready for the huge war. And the war against Ukraine will be a huge war in any case. The Russian armed forces were unprepared for the war, so maybe they must take responsibility. And also the Federal Guard Service, because these guys represent the Putin's inner circle or significant part of this inner circle right now. They were with Putin and maybe they motivated Vladimir Putin to to make this decision towards the aggression. And they are definitely, they are ideologically motivated. Their ideology is a historical mission of restoration of the Russian Empire. The golden age of the Russian Empire must be restored. Who will take the responsibility at the end? Because everyone understands within the Russian elite that so the war is a nightmare and the defeat in this war is a matter of time. Politically, Russia already lost this war. In terms of military affairs, Russia is still trying to prolong the agony, but nevertheless, Russia isn't capable to win the war. So that's sort of accepted. And the question is... Yeah, and who will take the responsibility? And Prigozhin... Who will be left carrying the baby? Yeah, and Prigozhin acting like a trickster, he says, okay, it's a bloody man Shoigu and all other swear words. It's Russian generals. Because the generals of Federal Guard Service, they cannot say these things publicly. Or the guys from the security services. But Prigozhin, who is able to act like a trickster who is able to to speak everything that people within the Kremlin can only think about. Mm-hmm. So he just presents this position. Okay. So turning to Libya, which is the home ground of this podcast, what is the goal of the Wagner Group's involvement there, shoring up the warlord Khalifa Hefter since 2018? Pavel, is it economic, geopolitical, or about an important node in the web that's being spun by Wagner in Africa? How is Libya seen? After the Arab Spring, when dictator Gaddafi was killed, it was a challenge for the Kremlin. Because there is a long-term fear within the Russian political elite. It started in 1999, 
when Slobodan Milosevic in Yugoslavia has been punished for his aggression against Kosovo population. And when in 2010, 11 years after Milosevic, the people in Kremlin saw their Arab Spring in Tunisia, in Libya, in Yemen, in Egypt, uh, the attempts of revolution, Bahrain. So they were scared and they believed that Arab Spring is not only no, the revolutions derived from authoritarian nature of the countries, uh, the authoritarian nature of Hosni Mubarak regime in Egypt, mm-hmm. the nature of uh, Gaddafi's regime in Libya. They believed that it is activity of the United States, the activity of, of the West, mm-hmm. the activity of NATO, that these guys in Washington, in Pentagon, in the White House, in Brussels, they are going to destroy all the sovereign governors and rulers of the North Africa and Middle East and so on. It's a kind of conspiracy theory, but uh, this theory was very common for the Russian elite. And uh, after the collapse of Gaddafi's regime, the Kremlin has been scared towards his death because they believed that it's a kind of conspiracy Mm. And that the West came for Gaddafi and soon, sooner or later, the West will come for Vladimir Putin. It came before Gaddafi came for Milosevic in 1999. And this was a widely held view within policy circles or a fringe uh, perspective? Uh, yes, because they discussed this in their public speeches. It was a kind of conspiracy theory. And one of the common rum- rumor within the Russian political elite was that Gaddafi was killed not by Libyans, but he was killed by ATO Special Operation Unit Group or something like that, either from Germany or from the United States or from the both countries, or maybe there were British military engaged into this. Nevertheless, it was a common feeling within the Russian political elite. And they translated this through propaganda channel. Even within the academic articles towards Arab Spring, there was a thesis point view that, oh, the Arab Spring was in favor of the West and that the West organized the Arab Spring. Of course, it's nonsense, but the Kremlin believed in this way. When Gaddafi was killed and when the civil war started in Libya, the Kremlin decided to play a role of troublemaker, of the regional troublemaker. Because when you came as a troublemaker somewhere, doesn't matter Libya or the Central African Republic or Syria, you may use the limited amount of sources. You don't need investments. You don't need a lot of military troops. You don't need to be responsible for the future. You have to be there. Mm. And you have to be a troublemaker. And after that, towards Libya, people from Cairo, from Egypt, will come to you to talk to you. People from Gulf monarchies mm. will come to you to talk to you. People from NATO come to you to talk to you because you are a troublemaker. And they don't know what to do with you. But suddenly, you are the core part of the negotiation process. Irresponsible mm. part. So it buys you a yes. seat at the table. And you don't need to, to take responsibility. And the Kremlin decided to play this role. In Libya, to be troublemaker, 
to increase the level of violence, to prolong the violence in Libya, to stimulate flows of refugees to Europe, to destabilize Europe, to destabilize the transatlantic unity, and so on. And even if some officials who are engaged into this process also make some money, the stable Lib- Libya, the peaceful Libya is not a point of interest because Kremlin is also wants to demonstrate to the other world that guys, firstly, any type of democratic revolution leads you to the fail, leads you to the civil war. Don't try to establish democracy. Don't try to mm-hmm. fight against your dictators. It's a road to ruin. Also, the Kremlin wants to demonstrate that, guys, any time, any place where the West tries to play some role, where the West, or of course the United States, is going to be a stabilizer of the situation, is tending to become even worse. The role mm-hmm. of the West in this global world is completely bad. Guys, international community, you must act or be closer to Russia, to Moscow, not to these hypocritic Westerners, especially Americans or representatives of NATO. The long-term purpose of the Kremlin is undermining of the American leadership, is undermining the transatlantic unity, is undermining the NATO. And they try to do this by relatively small uh, amount of of sources. If we talk about Libya or Central African Republic. In Syria, yes, Russia was engaged in the much more higher level. In Ukraine, of course, it's an awful criminal war with engagement of hundreds of thousands of troops, forces, and where Russia currently lost its significant part of its armed force. Speaking of Ukraine, there are whole units of foreign fighters on the Ukrainian side, including plenty of individuals from the West, the UK, the US and France, the International Legion. The Kremlin refers to them as mercenaries and felons. What do you think? They're not mercenaries in a meaningful interpretation of the term. Today, as I read, even Conor Kennedy the son of Kennedy, who is going to be nominated as a candidate for presidency. Yeah, uh, Robert. Yeah, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. As a, his son, Conor Kennedy, participated uh, in this foreign legion of uh, Ukraine's armed forces. And we also know another example of foreign legion. Yeah. It is a French foreign legion. And that means that we have to find a differ between foreign legions mm-hmm. and mercenaries. And it has already exist in the international law. Absolutely. There are plenty of ways of distinguishing them. Yes, because you may use foreigners in your armed forces, but they must belong to the armed forces. They must have uniform. They must have chevrons. They must have any signs of identification, affiliation with the armed forces as a legal part of the state. Mercenaries in Russia, Wagner Group, or the Union of Donbass Volunteers, or something like that, or any other types of mercenaries groups, they are not affiliated with the armed forces. They are separate from the armed forces. Officially, they are separate from any legal branch of the Russian state. I told you about the affiliation with Federal Guard Service. But officially, there is no such affiliation. 
There's no integration as well. They do not recognize this affiliation. Finally, Pavel, I'd like to ask you about Gazprom. In February, an order was signed by the Russian Prime Minister authorizing Gazprom to launch its own private military company. This is the state-owned energy giant Gazprom Neft. So this development was interpreted by some as bringing in a new Wagner group designed to extend Russia's influence and prop up Putin. But what is the real purpose behind this new PMC? What's your take? The real purpose is security measures, firstly inside Russia, then maybe in Belarus, where Gazprom facilities exist, then probably in the occupied parts of Ukraine that are still occupied. Maybe they will be deoccupied soon or in the foreseeable future, but the Kremlin believes that it will be able to keep control over this and who will defend the pipelines, gas pipelines in the occupied territories. So it it is not a private military company. And this is intended to be a normal private military company because if we remember American experience of the PMCs, it is a normal contractor. It's a normal practice to have a contractor who provides you with some services, security Mm -hmm. services, because the Mm -hmm. soldier must fight on the front line. When the soldier defends, I don't know, the storage with water and food, it's not a useful way of using soldier. You spend millions of dollars to train the soldier and then you put him or her just closer to water storage. Well, that's one of the moral arguments against private security companies and more benign roles is that they free up the capacity for soldiers to engage in lethal activity. Yes, and legally, the private military companies, they are prohibited from participating in any combat activity. They can use the guns only for defending themselves and their facilities. And uh, the same as towards Gazprom. Gazprom is huge, a lot of facilities, a lot of pipelines, thousands of kilometers of pipelines. Who will defend them? Especially if there will be a turbulence, political turbulence in Russia. When, I don't know, organized crime will increase its role if the Kremlin will lose the control over the territories inside Russia. Who will defend all these facilities? Like any other big uh, oil and gas companies in Russia, like Lukoil. Lukoil also has a big security service within its structure. When Lukoil worked in Iraq, Lukoil had its de facto private military company. It was a security company with guns, with maybe with machine guns, to defend the oil facilities in Iraq. But Gazprom feels that it needs its own yes. private company because of some probable turmoil Yes, within Russia as an outcome of the war in Ukraine. Within Russia, of course. Yes, outcomes of the war of Ukraine, outcome of the domestic political turbulence and so on. I presume it is not another combat unit for storming, for storming Bakhmut. I presume that Gazprom is going to defend itself, its facilities, its employees, because there are 400,000 employees within Gazprom. It's city. <laughs> Gazprom wants to protect itself from any probable or possible turbulence inside Russia because they don't believe They don't believe in Russia's victory. They don't believe in Putin. They don't believe, they don't believe in a stable and peaceful future of Russia. 
So they're not about to storm Bakhmut, but it's equally sinister, the reasons behind this formation. Yeah, currently that is my point. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Because if Gazprom will organize these units and will send them to the war, it will be the last weeks of Gazprom. Because the West may recognize Gazprom as a terroristic organization, like they did with the Wagner Group. So... No one will be able to cooperate with Gazprom anymore. Uh, I'm doing. Yes. Gazprom, Gazprom, I presume Gazprom does not want to be a terroristic organization. So they, they, they just try to protect their facilities inside of Russia, firstly, of course. Right. And the tens of thousands of combat veterans that will return to Russia with kind of limited economic future, is that part of the threat picture from Gazprom's thinking? Currently. Russia is going to co-opt the veterans into the political structure, especially on the local and regional levels. But I presume these efforts will be unsuccessful because these people, these veterans, they are not leaders, they are not popular among the Russian societies, among the communities, among the local communities. Mm. And I presume they will not be effective in their role because, okay, you may create kind of puppets, a kind of political theater with all these veterans who will be members of local legislatures, regional parliaments or federal parliament. But in reality, how can be they useful in terms of real political system, in terms Mm -hmm. of institutional activity? They are useless. And in absence of economic reforms in Russia, in absence of freedoms in Russia, Mm -hmm. the Kremlin will not be able to manage the situation. Like the uh, Kremlin in the late Soviet Union was not able to manage the situation with the veterans of Afghanistan. And the veterans of Afghanistan in late, I mean, veterans not, they are not Afghans, uh, the soldiers, the Soviet soldiers who was engaged, way engaged into the campaign, the Soviet campaign in Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghansi. Yes, yeah, Afghansi. Exactly, exactly. And uh, these people created a new generation of organized crime in late Soviet Union and uh, in uh, the early years of post-Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that the current guys, current veterans, they will create another generation of organized crime in Russia. And this generation will be more awful comparing to the Afghan generation. Because the war in Afghanistan in 1980s, it was a symmetric war. The Soviet troops, they were not engaged into bloody combat activity on a daily basis. Even the amount of casualties. Yeah, it's non-comparable. Yeah, Currently, in one year of, of the war in Ukraine, Russia lost more soldiers, several times more soldiers right. than in 10 years in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then in several years in Chechnya. Yeah. This experience changes the psychology of people. Mm-hmm. Currently, there is an awful time in Ukraine because Russia continues its aggression. But when Russia will not be able to continue and all these soldiers will, and mercenaries will go back. Yeah. And they will be not only organized crime, I presume they may be used as a, a combat units in a, in a regional political competition. Well, there's something I think here that's analogous to the white power movement in the US, actually, when you had the wars in Vietnam and then to some extent in Iraq and Afghanistan, where veterans of those unjust conflicts bring the war home and you get this kind of overspill domestically. And I'd imagine in Russia, 
which is lacking in democratic institutions and the kind of social and economic buffers, as you say, that we have in the West, however imperfect, I'd imagine that overspill is going to be intense and unpredictable. For sure. You're completely right. And I cannot exclude the prospect of the civil war in Russia in this way. Goodness. Like in Libya, after the collapse of Gaddafi regime and the long-term absence of democratic institution, market economy, and all these tribal affairs in Libya created the basis for the civil war, for the ongoing civil war. And as I know, the current intensity of this war is lower than it was several years ago. I hope that finally Libya finds its peace. But in Russia, we are just in the beginning of the process. Mm. Because currently, we do have more than 20 years of absence or lack of democratic institutions. We Currently, we don't have market economy, just some segments of market economy, but it is not market economic system. So there's hundreds of thousands of veterans who will come back sooner or later to Russia. It will be political, economy, social disaster. It will be high level of violence. And I presume the opportunity, the probability of the civil war in Russia is much higher now than it was, I don't know, three years ago. Well, that's a very somber note to leave it on, Pavel. But thank you for your time and your insights and for the very valuable granularity that you shared with us. Thank you so very much for joining us on the Guns for Hire podcast. And thank you again for the invitation. And I hope that our conversation today would be useful for our audience, for your audience. Thank you to the Atlantic Council for (laughs) for this podcast. Thank you, Pavel. As ever, thanks to you for listening. In the coming episode, we'll be discussing the connection between the warlord who controls eastern Libya and the conflict in Sudan. Yup, mercenaries. And in the episode after that, we'll be joined by the former British mercenary and SAS soldier, Simon Mann. Please feel free to send in any questions using social media. I'm Ali Abrahimi on most platforms. Until next month, goodbye.